All right, hey everyone, uh, welcome to The Exchange. So glad you guys are here. My name is Josiah. Um, pumped that you guys are with us this morning. Uh, let's do this. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are in chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. If you would raise your hand, we would love to get you a Bible if you don't have one, just so you could follow along with us. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark since January. Um, so we've been flying through this book, as you can tell. Uh, but we are in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And um, hey, on, on Friday night, we had something called Team Night, where we got to just gather together as those who serve or are interested in serving. And that was just um, that was a fun night. It was a powerful night. It was cool to see everyone who just comes and, and makes really service in church and groups and outreach happen. Um, and I just want to say, for like all of you sitting down here, Guys, I'm, we're just so appreciative of what the Lord's doing. We're so thankful for all of you. Uh, we cannot do without you guys. Um, we're blessed that you're here. We just hope that you guys feel that way too. I mean, this has become our family, so it's been so cool just seeing what the Lord's been doing. Uh, but Mark chapter 14, l- we're going to do something a little bit different today, just so you guys do know and are aware of this. I know we took communion last week, but we're going to take again communion this week. And you're like, you can't do that. Yes, we can. It's okay. You can take communion two weeks in a row. Um, we're actually in the text where Jesus, we see the Last Supper, or we see communion, um, or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, we see this being introduced, the new covenant. So even though we took it last week, man, we got to take it this week. And we actually want to end differently by giving more of a time of worship and just taking communion where you're at. And we're going to try to just make it a little bit different so we can enjoy the moment a little bit more. But we are in Mark chapter 14. Again, turn there. Uh, if you are new or you're with us last week, let me just kind of catch up to speed. We studied Mark chapter 13 last week, the whole chapter. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple in detail. And then Jesus talks about a second coming. And really the heart behind the second coming is for us just to long to be with him, to want to be with him, to desire him. It's not that Jesus is a parent who's out of town. We're like, let's party. It's more of someone who we love, of the lover of our soul who's gone. And we're like, we cannot wait to be reunited with him. And that perspective change when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. So if last week was your first week and you're back again this week, I am so proud of you. I'm glad you came back for week two because uh, there's a lot of end times talk. But um, glad you guys are here, here and with us. So we're in Mark chapter 14. And let me just kind of, again, p- catch up to speed. This is where the intensity picks up. So we're in the last week. Now we're in the last couple days of Jesus' life. We call this the passion, the time of his suffering. We're a couple of days and even the night before he's going to be crucified. So this is where the intensity picks up a bit, but here's what we're going to see and study and look at today. We're going to see two tables where Jesus sits at before his his crucifixion. And these are two tables of just extravagant love. And let me just point this out. I love the fact the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, and even a couple days before, you see him just sitting at a table. And he's not worried. He's not concerned. He's not freaking out. He's not stressing out. He's just eating. He's enjoying the people around him, He's sharing with him some final words, and I think there's so much to take away from this. So the main thought or title is just two tables of extravagant love, and what we're going to see is a woman who just pours out her love on Jesus, which is so beautiful, and it seems to be many times it's just a woman who just has this awesome encounter with Jesus, and then we're going to see Jesus brought his love for us on another table, the Last Supper table, the communion table. And it's interesting how Mark writes this, because it's almost as if he's saying, look at this woman who shows this just crazy kind of love to Jesus, And then look at Judas, who just wants to use Jesus and get something from Jesus. And so it's almost like he's comparing and contrasting uh, this woman who comes with this just open heart with Judas. And so I want you to see kind of this compare and contrast between this woman who's devoted to Jesus and Judas who's about to betray Jesus. 
And then we're going to see two tables, though. So there's two tables of Jesus' extravagant love, of extravagant, uh, extravagant grace. Uh, but let me do this. We're just going to pray before we read. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 26. That's our text today. But rather than reading all of it right now, I figure we could just pray, and then we'll go through the text. Cool? Sound good? Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Father, again, we just, um, we're humbled by this moment to look at the last supper, or really the first supper, to look at just what you've left us, Jesus, how you redefined the Passover, how you redefined what, what substitution and sacrifice really looks like. God, I just ask that you would um, just speak to my heart, all of our hearts this morning. God, again, I know that um, <laughs> we can come in with distracted minds and busy minds and busy hearts, but Jesus, just uh, calm our mind, calm our hearts, speak to us, Jesus. Let us learn from this woman who comes to you, giving the most precious things she has to you. And Jesus, let us learn even from Judas. But God, we just ask that you'd be here and that you'd move and you'd speak in your name. Amen. So much happens at the table. For me, growing up, so much has happened at a table. I, I love family dinners. I love being at a table. I love sitting around eating with people, talking with people. I think about conversations I've had with my parents or even now with Micah. We're at the table, our three-year-old son. And we're trying to teach him and talk to him. And I feel like a lot of life, if you think about the majority of life, because you work, you sleep, but so much life happens around a table. So much community happens around the table. And tables, again, they're probably just some of my favorite memories, probably because I just love food. And you can like mention a conversation conversation that we had. I'm like, oh yeah, we're eating broccoli and this, that. Like, I know, like, it takes me back, you know, to that night. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up, and that is one of my favorite just times to get to get together. I haven't celebrated Thanksgiving. We, my wife and I, haven't celebrated Thanksgiving with our family in a while, just because we're here and they're in California. Uh, but when I think of Thanksgiving, I think of my brother, my family, sitting around the table. My brother's five years older than me, and he's probably the funniest guy I've ever known, but funny in a way where he's going to, like, hurt you in the process. Like, you're going to laugh and be like, oh, that really hurt. But, like, our Thanksgiving tradition, I think, as a family, is my brother is even though it's like an unspoken rule, he just goes around the table and makes fun of all of us, basically. He just tears us apart. And it is hilarious when it's not your turn, but when he gets to you, you're like, <laughs> it's pretty intense. My mom's like dying, like she's laughing so hard, she starts to cry, but then it turns into like real sadness cry. You're like, oh mom, please stop. You know, because he just goes around, and he like tears us apart. He, my grandpa, I remember, I remember like all of my Thanksgivings with my grandpa, my brother like making fun of him, and he couldn't hear him. And you're like, oh my gosh, Josh, you gotta stop. It was terrible. It was terrible, but it was the best times as, as well. <laughs> Some of my favorite moments as well. And a lot of life happens at a table. I mean, you just think about life in general and how much happens at a table, even at a church. So much of the church happens around the table. So listen, spiritual growth and formation happens around a table. I mean, I think about our groups and I think about how we're meeting like weekly, consistently, and I go, man, so much, so much growth and formation happens when you're around a table with the Bible open, talking about Jesus, talking about life applications, stories, personal things, you know, walking through a text like Mark 13 last week and going, what were you talking about, Josiah? Help me understand this. And it just so much of our spiritual development comes from being at a table. And we see this a lot with Jesus, and we see him at two different tables before his, res his death and resurrection. Two different tables. Tables, I think, meant a lot to Jesus. His followers, they're constantly eating, constantly talking. A lot of things, a lot of great things happen at the table. And we see two phenomenal things happen at the tables today. All right? So we're going to break down this text. And I want you to see this. And I want you to read this and like see this, what's, what's happening. But here's how we're going to break it down today. We're going to see extravagant love displayed to Jesus. We're going to see extravagant love contrasted with betrayal. And we're going to see extravagant love displayed from Jesus. So extravagant love displayed to Jesus from this woman. We're going to see this extravagant love compared and contrasted with someone who's going to betray him. 
and then extravagant love from Jesus at another table. All right, sound good? So let's read. It's, it's Mark chapter 14. Let's look at verse 1. We'll read the first five verses. Mark writes, remember Jesus just got done talking about the end times and all of that. Verse 1, he says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And they end up doing that. Verse 3. Uh, and being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly uh, oil of spikenard, that she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant, they're outraged, they're irate among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. All right, so it's just a couple days before Jesus is taken to be crucified. And let me kind of like paint the picture. Jesus is having a dinner or he's at the table, it says, at Simon the leper's house. Now, Bethany was a city kind of on the other side of Mount of Olives, really close to Jerusalem, really close to the Mount of Olives. It's like on the kind of slope of it. He's at Simon the leper's house. And that's interesting. I don't know if you read that in verse three and you're like, Simon the leper? Like he's at Simon the leper's house a couple nights before. Like what, what, is, what is he doing there? What's happening there? Why is, why is it Simon the leper's house? Now, let me clarify something. Simon is probably not currently a leper. Lepers couldn't own property. They would have been kicked out of community. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't eat with people. They couldn't be near people. Most likely, Simon the leper was like what he was known for, but this was someone that Jesus healed and cleansed. And I have to say, that's obviously the case. He would not be at the leper's house. He wouldn't have been there. It's believed historically that this guy, Simon, was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Maybe. That's interesting. Could be the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he's at Simon the leper's house. And I had to stop when I was reading this and just think about that and focus on that and enjoy that. That Jesus, a couple nights before he's going to be crucified, is identifying with and going to a former leper's house. A leper, someone who couldn't have been in community, couldn't go to temple, would have been ostracized. We talked about leprosy a few weeks ago when Jesus healed a leper. But you think about a guy who was just an outcast, Jesus healed and made new. And we're going to see in just a couple of days, Jesus is going to become that leper. Jesus is going to become the outcast. Je you know, leprosy, speaking of sin and taking on sin, and Jesus is like, hey, you were a leper, well, I'm going to become a leper. You were far off, now you're brought near. I'm near, but I'm going to be brought far off. Jesus is going to become that leper so that people like Simon and people like you and me could be brought in. Again, leprosy was like an untouchable, disgusting act. In their mind, like, you can't touch or be around. Jesus is like, I'm going to his house. This is such an important, significant thing. And it says, while well, he's at Simon the leper's house, this woman came in. Now, who is this woman? And so she just came in and she breaks this alabaster flask and pours this oil on his head. Now, who is she? It's interesting to me. Matthew and Mark don't tell us who it is, but the Gospel of John does. John says this is Mary, right? Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, the sister of Martha. It's that Mary. Why doesn't Matthew and Mark say it? I really don't know. It's interesting to me that John was probably the last Gospel written. So it's most likely when John wrote it, Mary was passed away, her family was passed away. John, most likely in his 90s when he wrote this book in the Gospel of John. So it's, it's likely that everyone's passed with John's like, okay, I'll tell you who that woman is, it's Mary. But either way, Mark doesn't tell us. But we know it's Mary. She's at the house and she just charges in. And, and I got to talk about Mary for a second because you guys maybe know this. But it is interesting when you see Mary in the scriptures. I mean, she's mentioned three different times primarily. And when you see Mary, she's just constantly at the feet of Jesus. If you want to write down Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is teaching, Martha's at the house working, 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 her sister's working, and where's Mary? She's sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. When you hear about her brother Lazarus, who died and passed away, and four days passed, Jesus comes up to Lazarus' family four days later, and she runs and falls at the feet of Jesus. And what do we see here in this passage? 
before Jesus' crucifixion, just at the feet of Jesus. I mean, Mary was just someone who was just awestruck and in love and passionate, passionately in love with Jesus. She just wanted to be at his feet, listen, learn, and enjoy Jesus. And we have a lot to learn from Mary. How do we just enjoy Jesus? How do we not be busy, but just can sit down and enjoy Jesus? And so she comes in, and this is what's in- interesting. Most likely it's a room just full of the disciples, the men with Jesus, and here comes this woman into this room, and, and their culture in this time, it would have been somewhat disrespectful. She's barging in. They're going, who is, what? She's interrupting our time together, but she like, doesn't care. She's like, I just, I have to do this. And I see, like, with Mary, I, I see this, like, s- a sense of action that she's taking place. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this uh, story this, in this sermon, and he said this. He says, if we could all do m- more and talk less, it might be a blessing to ourselves, at least perhaps to others. Let us labor in our service for the Lord to be more and more hidden. As much as proud desire to catch the eye of men, let us endeavor to avoid it. She just, she just wanted to come in and bless Jesus. She just wanted to come in and sit at his feet. Now, what does she do? Like, what does she give? I just want to point this out. It's pretty clear. Let me just say this. She gives her best. Like, she comes in this alabaster flask of spikenard oil. What is that? And, and how, why is it so significant, and why is this recorded in this way? Uh, this, this nard oil was kind of like a, from a flower in the Himalayas and India and China kind of area, and it would have been very difficult for them to get back then. As you just read, they would have said, man, this costs over 300 denarii. What is she doing? Over 300 denarii. Just so you guys know, a denarii, you get, like, you get one denarii a day for basically a day's work. It's almost a year's worth of wages. A year's worth of wages. So let's just paint a picture. Imagine someone with 30 to 40 to 70 to 80,000 dollars comes in and just pours it out on Jesus. A year's worth of salary. Jesus, here's 50 grand. Here's a year's worth of wages. I just want to, and they're going, what are you doing, right? They're like, are you crazy? And she doesn't just like, notice she breaks it. She breaks, like there's no turning back. I'm giving him all of it. She breaks this oil. And in my mind, I, I honestly, my heart is so wicked. I probably would have like, like dabbed it with my finger, like put on his head. Like, okay, that's like a week's worth of money. <laughs> you know, like think about a little jar being a year's worth of wages. Like, okay, here you go. Let's anoint your head. It's like she just pours it out. And they're furious by this. And this angers him. And when you read this, we have to stop and ask. Because this is obviously a crazy, extravagant act of love of her giving her best. And we have to ask, Jesus, do I give you my best? You know, do I, do I give you the best things, the first things? Do I give you the last things, the leftovers? I'm going to confess something, and maybe some of you have done this too and thought this too, uh, but when something in my house kind of gets in the way, starts to kind of break down a little bit, dresser, clothes, my first thought is, oh, I wonder if the church wants this, <laughs> right? Anyone else been there? Don't lie. Don't you dare be cheap and lie. Don't. All of us have been there. Like, we go, oh my gosh, my house, I need to get rid of this, maybe the church. And it's funny how, like, my first response is, what can I give to Jesus? That's like, le- it's not good enough for me, but maybe it's good enough for Jesus, but not for her. For her, she's like, I need to give my best. And I want you to understand the vulnerable place this puts her in. Imagine having a year's worth of wages being poured out on Jesus. Imagine that, that, that place that puts you in. One author said it this way. He says, early in the first century, Pliny the Elder, who is a great historian, he says, remarked that the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. The value of the perfume and its identification as nard suggests that it was a family heirloom that has passed from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. That this was not just of extreme monetarily, monetary value, but sentimental value. That this would mean a lot to her and her family. I mean, again, think about if she ever got into a place where she couldn't work or something happened. Hey, at least I have my, my alabaster flask of oil. At least I have some savings. So if anything happens to me, I'm okay. And she's in a sense just pouring this out on Jesus saying, I'm being really vulnerable with you, Jesus. 
I'm, I'm giving you my best. I'm putting myself in a vulnerable spot because I love you and I trust you. And this makes the other people around furious. And there's something about when people are bold for Jesus or show their love for Jesus, we go, that's too far. That's too much devotion to Jesus. Like anyone who's more in love with Jesus than us is, a, is like a fanatic. It's almost like, they can't love Jesus that much. That's like, okay, that's a little weird. Like, I remember when I first really got saved and started like following Jesus, walking with Jesus, growing in my love for Jesus. One of my fears was like, well, I don't want to be that Christian. I don't want to be that weird Christian that eats lunch over there and does those weird, like, I'm like, I don't want to be that person. And it's anyone who's more passionate than us, like, well, they're just a little extreme. And, and, and you almost can't be. But for them, this, they, they get irate. I want you to notice that it says in verse four, it says they were indignant, they were outraged, irate. They were furious by this great display of devotion. And there's something about that. It's actually interesting. In John chapter 12, if you want to note this, write this down, remember this. Who led this irate frustration? Guess who? Judas. In John chapter 12, we'll read it, verse 4. I'll put it up here for you. Uh, It says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus, said, this is what Judas said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. This is interesting. Judas was the guy who carried the money bag. And he's going, no, this should have been given to the poor and put in the money box. Like he's almost trying to come across as like a righteous guy. Like, look, I care for the poor. Like I care about, uh, she doesn't care about poor people. I do, Jesus. We should do something about this. And John, looking back, goes, no, he's a thief. He didn't really care. He didn't care about the poor. This wasn't the issue. He, he, He was just selfish. And again, it's funny because, again, 300 denarii really is crazy. If you guys remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and Jesus is like, hey, disciples, you feed them. And they're going, uh, even 200 denarii cannot feed all these people. Like, that was a lot of money to them. Like, even, th- that's no, even like 200 couldn't. She offers something worth three. It's just, we just see this gr- crazy great act of love displayed, and it frustrates people. And I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure why it seems to offend people. For some reason, we see someone do like a crazy awesome thing for Jesus. Like, they sold things, moved, became a missionary, did something extreme. What are you doing? Aren't you thinking about your retirement plan? Aren't you thinking about this? We're like, why, why are you thinking that way? And we almost like discourage. Like, we want moderate devotion to Jesus, but we don't want this extreme act of love and devotion to Jesus so often. And, and they're furious by this. And it says they're indignant, and they're angry. And notice what they said, and I just, I was stopped. They said, why does she waste, they wasted this. She wasted. Do you know what that means? Like, I had a, when you read that, and I circled that, not only are they demeaning her and her act, but understand that they are demeaning Jesus. Jesus is not worth this. You, you know, buy him like a $10 ointment and pour that. Like, he's not worth this. That's, they're basically demeaning Jesus at that moment. How could she waste this on Jesus? It's really interesting. Jesus ends up saying about Judas the same word and the same thing. And I, again, we don't maybe pick up on it. We weren't there. We didn't really see this play out in this way. But Judas is like, this is a waste. This is a waste. And later Jesus calls Judas a waste. It's actually John chapter 17, verse 12. Uh, the verse says this, those whom, whom you gave me, he's talking to God, he's praying. Those whom you gave me, Father, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, the son of waste. This is literally the same Greek word that they use. She's wasting, she's wasting this on Jesus. And Jesus is like, no one's lost but the son of waste. Judas thought this was a waste, but Judas' life was a waste. This is not a small, I don't want to downplay this. This is an intense thing Jesus is saying. Let me say this, you guys, we're, we're never going to waste anything on Jesus. There's never anything you're going to do or give or be a part of and go, I wasted that. I wasted my time. I wasted my energy. I wasted my effort. I wasted it. It's never going to be a waste. 
It'll never be at some point, someone's like, oh, you waste, you're wasting your time going to church. You're wasting your time helping. What are you doing? You're wasting that. It's not going to go to waste. Not by any means. In fact, Jesus ends up defending her, standing up for her. And listen to what he says in verse 6. Verse 6, it says, But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman has do- what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus says what she's done will always be for remembered. Wherever people talk about my name, they're going to talk about this extravagant act of love. And, this, and here we are. Like, here we are in 2018 talking about this woman and this extravagant act of love, and obviously it's fulfilled, and it happened, and we're still talking about it. Because let me say this, Jesus does not forget our extravagant acts of love. He does not. If you would write down this verse, because I know that I can get discouraged, and maybe you can get discouraged so often, and maybe what you do for Jesus, or maybe you think it's too little. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says it this way. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The author says, your extravagant acts of love towards Jesus will always be remembered. He's not unjust to forget your work or labor of love. Do not think for a moment that what you've done is a waste. Because I want you to understand something, and I want to just like paint this picture. Jesus is not far from being crucified. Here's this woman pouring out this nard on his head, and it probably was just a crazy strong aroma. I walked by some other day, and I don't know, she's probably 10 feet from me, and I got punched in the face with her perfume. Like, oh, I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is, was that nard? I don't even know. Like, maybe you've been around that. And it's, it's intense, and this is just covered from head to toe. Like, you, you think about her pouring this out, and it just flowing down his face into his garment, down his, his, to his feet. We're told that she wiped and cleaned his feet with it, head to toe covered in this oil. And I want you to think in just a couple of days, he's going to be bloody and sweaty. And it wouldn't be the smell of nard, it'd be the smell of blood and sweat. And I wonder if going to the cross, he got a whiff of that nard. <laughs> Seriously, I wonder if going to the cross, he did or others did. Like, what's that? You know, here's a bloody, I mean, you think about how, and we talked about the crucifixion even on Good Friday, and just, you think about how in-depth that was, the, the suffering he went through, and my, maybe they just got a whiff of this nard smell. There's a poem that I just like, it's almost like a poem, but it's not really, like, it doesn't really rhyme, so, but it's still a poem. Um, I'm going to throw up here, and it might be really hard to read, so don't, just, just listen to this. One author wrote this, and I thought it was so profound. This is what he writes. He says, and just listen, maybe then even reading. He says, doubtless the fragrance absorbed by his garment as it flowed from his head, accompanied Christ through the humiliation of his trials. Through the heavy smell of sweat and blood, a hint of that fragrance must have arisen from his garment. Until that shameful last, the garment was stripped and gambled away, and maybe, just maybe, it was that scent. Amid the stench of humanity, rabbled around the cross that gave the Savior the strength to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as Mary walked away from the cross, the same scent probably still lingered in the now limp air she used to dry her Savior's feet. A reminder of that love that she spilled from his broken alabaster body, so pure, so lovely, so truly extravagant. It was a vase he never regretted breaking, nor did she. You think about this vase that was broken, you think about the smell, basically saying Jesus' body is really that, that priceless scent that was broken for us that for not for one second was it ever regretted. I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have spent my years with a salary on Jesus. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have given up such a sentimental thing for Jesus. And I just love this thought that he's, he's like introducing. Jesus said, wherever the gospel preached, it's going to be a memorial to her. He goes, leave her alone. He's like, I love how you just stand. He's like, don't, why are you bothering her? 
Look what she's doing. Leave her alone. She's anointing my head for burial. She gets it. She knows what's going on. And it's interesting because in a second too, we're going to just compare this with Judas. But I want you to notice something in verse 9 that was said about her and in something in verse 21 that will be said about Judas. We'll throw the verses up here. Jesus said again, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman, that what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. In verse 21, it says about Judas, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. I want you to see that they're both memorialized. She's forever memorialized in this way and Judas forever memorialized in another way. And you see him, and, and we see what's being introduced now at this time. So let's just keep reading now. We're going to look at number two. Number two, we're going to see the idea of an extravagant love contrasted with betrayal. All right? An extravagant love contrasted with betrayal. Look at verse 10. So after all this happened, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. All right, you could not have a greater contrast. Like, here's this woman giving everything to Jesus. Judas is furious by this, according to John 12. He's so frustrated by this act. He's like, I need a, she gave up money. What can I get for him? She spent everything. I'll take anything. He's, he's negotiating and bargaining the price of Jesus' life and death. And he goes to the chief scribes and Pharisees. And let me just throw up a few compare and contrast because this is interesting. And maybe you can take note of this, write this down. Uh, think about this. Mary was a woman in this day, a woman of no real standing. Judas was a man and one of the apostles. Mary gave what she could to Jesus. Judas took what he could get from Jesus. Mary blessed her Lord. Judas betrayed his Lord. Mary loved her Lord. Judas used his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. Mary memorialized forever her devotion. Judas memorialized forever his betrayal. I mean, this is what Mark is showing is look at this great act of love and look at this great act of betrayal. And he's just showing you the difference between the two and what that looks like. And, and here's what I, we just have to talk about briefly. <sighs> Sometimes we can view Jesus as useful or we can just view Jesus as beautiful. See, for Mary, Jesus was beautiful. For Mary, he's like, I just want Jesus. For Judas, Jesus was just useful. What can I get from Jesus? What can Jesus do for me? Wait a second. I don't think he's going to be the Messiah that we thought he was going to be. I don't think he's going to overthrow Rome like we thought he could. Let me, I got to get something out of this. If I can't get anything from it, I'm going to sell him and make some money off this. And honestly, there's really two approaches to Jesus. Our approach to Jesus is, what can Jesus do for me? He's useful for me. He can help me. And as soon as he stops help, helping me, I'm going to throw him away. Or it's Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end in itself. Jesus is the something beautiful. He's the something I look for and long for. Again, like we can talk about this in so many different ways. So for example, um, I like to, we like to travel, we like to go on vacation, you guys too, I'm sure. No one like pays all this money to go to the beach and the beach can now be used for something. It's not like, the, be the beach is just the end itself. It's beautiful. I just want to look at this view. I want to look at this waterfall. I want to look at this mountain. In and of itself, it's the end of it. Like we just want that so we can enjoy it. But so often I think we don't view Jesus as the end itself. We, we view him as the means to the end. I want this ultimately, so I'm going to use Jesus to try to get this. And please, please hear the difference between Judas and Mary. Again, Judas had this perspective of what can, what can Jesus do for me? Mary has, I just want to enjoy him. And I think the difference between someone who's around Jesus and a religious person who's around Jesus, he's still just useful to you. The church is useful to you. As soon as the, the church stops doing what I want it to do, as soon as Jesus stops doing what I want it to do, I'm done. I'm over it. I'm out. And again, now Jesus or the church or something around those lines is just a means to an end rather than the end itself. And Jesus is saying, like, I want to be the, the end itself. Mary shows us how Jesus was just simply beautiful. He's not some means to an end. He is the end. 
He's not just some means to something wonderful. Jesus is the something wonderful. And we got to see that. And honestly, you guys, in my own life, and if we were to be honest, so often I probably find myself more like Judas. I think we, would, we wouldn't like to admit this, but so often we do like to use Jesus. And if Jesus doesn't give us what we want, what we expected, what we hope for, it's like I'm kind of, Jesus, I had this great mindset. You didn't do what I wanted you to do, and we're like over it. And honestly, I have to ask myself, am I more guilty of being Mary? Or am I more guilty of being Judas? And way too often now I have to confess, Jesus, I'm more like being Judas. I'm not just enjoying you. I just, I, I'm trying to enjoy you for some other reason. And we're missing the point. Would you guys agree? Jesus cannot be the means to something wonderful. He is the something wonderful. He is the something that we should find that ultimate rest and satisfaction in. And it's really interesting. I want to point something out. A guy named Jonathan Edwards, who's a great preacher back in the day, he wrote about this, this sermon, this topic, and he said something. He basically said this. He goes, the thing, listen, the things that shocked everyone about Mary's act of devotion was its uselessness. The thing that shocked everyone was like how useless this is. I want to point this out. Lazarus, her brother, is already back to life. Like she already had what she probably wanted the most. I want my brother to live. Like there was not, she wasn't doing this to like force Jesus' hand for something. She wasn't trying to like, let me show Jesus my love in order so I can get something from him. It's like, and I love how Edwards puts it, this was useless to people, but for her, it's not about using him. It's about enjoying him. He is the end itself. And it says, it's crazy how it says how he just, Judas conveniently, he conveniently looked for a time to betray Jesus, and it is never a convenient time to betray Jesus. He's like, I'm, I'm looking for this convenient time to betray him. And so he, again, what Mark is doing is saying, look at Mary's gift and look at Judas's betrayal and look how, for us, for us, it can be such a crazy, simple, small line. We love, we're following Jesus until he's not doing what we want him to do and that's what happened to Judas. For Mary, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna follow Jesus regardless. Let's keep moving on, verse 12. So now Judas is looking to betray Jesus. Verse 12, it says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, uh, or sorry, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover, the second table? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they were prepared for the Passover. So this is now the second meal. The first meal, we see this extravagant act of love from this woman. Now we're going to see the second table, the second meal. And this is such an interesting story to me. And, and just look at the timing. Consider this. It is Passover. Uh, a, a Roman historian, a Jewish Roman historian named Josephus wrote that during this time, the city would go from about 85,000 people to 300,000 people. That literally, and he recorded in AD 66, not too long after, there's literally about 280 lambs being sacrificed in one day. Sorry, 280,000 lambs being sacrificed in one day. 280,000 lambs being slaughtered on the day of Passover. And notice the timing. On the day that lambs are being slaughtered, here's Jesus, the ultimate lamb, the lamb who take away the sins of the world, celebrating this Passover meal. Now, what is Passover? Let's just review. Passover is basically like the Jewish 4th of July. It's like the Jewish Independence Day, you could say. The Passover was a time that they would actually celebrate and remember the fact that God led them out of slavery, out of bondage, into the promised land. How God led them out of being slaves to the Egyptians. And remember all the, the 10 plagues that Moses really pronounced upon Egypt, the 10th plague being the plague where the first male son would die unless there's a lamb that was slaughtered, unless there's blood that was applied to the doorposts. And the idea was either your son dies or the lamb dies. And everyone who's under the blood was saved. 
Everyone who offered up the substitute was saved. And ultimately, we see that Passover is speaking of Jesus. I mean, so clearly. That in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul would write Jesus, our Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. I mean, either the son dies or the lamb dies. In our case with Jesus, the son died and the lamb died. So that why? So we could, we could have a substitute. So we could be covered under the blood so that we wouldn't have to die. And so we see that Passover is this time where they're celebrating this great feast. And I want you to think about this really quick. When the city goes from 85,000 to 300,000 in like a week period of time, the Roman soldiers would come in, like uh, we had Pontius Pilate would come in, all the kind of the Roman officials would come into the city to make sure there wasn't an uproar. You know, if you think about living in this day and age, and like there's like the news or ESPN, and there's kind of like, all right, who's the person to follow? Who's the person that might, you know, lead this uproar, this charge? I think Jesus is kind of the guy. And like, they'd almost like, their, their eyes were all on Jesus. What's he going to do? I mean, again, they're remembering, we're led out of slavery into freedom. Hey, maybe during Passover this can happen again. Hey, maybe this will happen Will someone will leave us out of slavery into freedom hoping that it would be Jesus in this, this literal sense of under Roman government, maybe not in a spiritual sense. They didn't see it that way. And so we see this Passover is happening. They're eating this meal. They're looking for this meal. This is an important meal, an important time. This, these directions from Jesus are mind-blowing to me in verse 12 through 16, where he's like, all right, this is what I want you to do. The Passover is important. Go into the city. You're going to see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that guy and just say, hey, we need your room. All right? So I feel like Star Wars, like, hey, we need your room. It's like, okay, take my room. Okay, what is that about? Um, again, most people do write that this is actually Mark's home. This is maybe where Mark at this point introduces himself. We'll see another place in the text where it's possible that Mark introduced himself into the text. It's possible. We don't know. That's what church history will say. But here, here's what is interesting. I want you to see that Jesus has complete control even the time leading up to his death. Jesus is just about to be crucified. He's not far away from that, but he's still in control. Can we remember that? That despite the crucifixion, despite we go, this is something tragic and awful, Jesus is still in control. He still has control over the circumstances. They're going to this room now. And now let's read what happens in this room. They're taking this meal. We're going to see that second table. Look at verse 17. It says, uh, in, the evening, in the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, is it I? Is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, Matthew and Luke make it really clear the one who dips with him is Judas, that Judas is the one who betrays him. But I have to point this out. Jesus, now I find this fascinating the way Jesus does this. He, he doesn't walk in and say, Judas, Judas is going to betray me. He goes, he walks in and says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, I love the response. Is, is it I? We just point this out. Jesus isn't like, hey, one of you guys in this room is going to betray me. And they're like, ah, Judas. I knew it's Judas. Judas. And Judas is like, hmm. Like, it's not like this weird, obvious thing. Remember, Judas carried the money. Judas is from Iscariot. Judas is probably somewhat of a wealthy guy, smart guy, intellectual guy. Judas is not from Galilee. He's not like one of the other 11. He, he's different from them. They think he's probably better than them in some ways. No one's going, ah, oh, I knew it's Judas. He was up to something. We saw him disappear. They don't know. They don't know who it is. Their response is, is it I? And I think the reason Jesus says it this way, hey, one of you will betray me rather than Judas is going to betray me, I think for two reasons Jesus does this. I think one, for everyone to take an, in, like an inward inventory of their life, is it me? Is it me? I think there's something really helpful about all of us asking this question, is it me? Is my heart, is my heart close to betraying you? Could my heart betray you? Could, is it I? I think a lot of times when we ask these questions, if all, or someone will ask a spiritual question, we go, oh, I know my friend would. Like, we don't, we don't do this. We don't go, it, it could be me. I think we can learn from the disciples by asking, no, my, my heart, like the fact that they're aware, maybe my heart could. 
maybe, maybe it's possible. Is Jesus speaking of me? Is he prophesying of me? But I think another reason Jesus says it this way, he says, one of you will betray me rather than Judas. I think, honestly, it's the most loving thing he could do for Judas. I think he's saying, Judas, I know it's you. I see it's you. You know, you know I know it's you. And I believe many authors write about this question, the way it's formed, and the fact is that Jesus is giving time for Judas to repent. And I, I honestly think this is a really compassionate, loving thing. D.A. Carson, one of the leading scholars today in the world, he said it this way about Judas. He says, this is Jesus' final act of courtesy and love toward Judas. The fact that he says, one of you is going to betray me, he's like, this is so loving of Jesus. This is so, like, we, we do know, it's so interesting how this does work, and I'm not going to get into this right now, but, Jesus, but Judas did have a choice in this matter. He did. And Jesus, I don't believe Jesus is asking this to condemn him as much as to convict him. To condemn him and saying, you're going to betray as much as, hey, Judas, like you know and I know. And to see like what would happen at this point. Like this is a loving, the final loving act Jesus specifically gave to Judas. And so Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They're all going, it could be me. It could be me. And again, I, I think there's something about this because we're about to now look at how Jesus institutes communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to, like he institutes this. And there's something about all of us going to the communion table with this mindset of, could I be the one that would hurt Jesus? Could I be the one that would sin against Jesus? There's something actually incredibly humbling to go, Jesus, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. <laughs> my heart is prone to, to maybe walk away from you. To be honest with yourself, to be honest with God. They're about to take, in a sense, the very first communion, we call it, the, the last supper, and they're all going to take this with this mindset of, Jesus is going to die for me because he needs to. I need to take this because I'm prone to sin. I need to take this because this isn't for someone else. Like I, my heart, Josiah's heart is very wicked and I need a substitute and I need a Passover lamb and I need someone to take away my sin. And it kind of puts you in this humbling spot. Is it I? Is it I? Hey, eat this. Okay, I'll eat it. It's almost just putting them in a humble spot ready to take communion. And so this brings us to our third act, you could say. Uh, number three, we see the extravagant love displayed from Jesus at this other table. Let's read in verse 22. It says, in verse 22, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer eat of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's just stop there really quick. So Jesus is, they're taking Passover. Okay, if you've ever been to a Seder, or if you've ever seen a Seder, or read about a Seder, or anything like that, maybe you've seen how Seders are performed and you have a presider. You have someone kind of holding up the bread and, and speaking about the bread or holding up the herbs or holding up, you know, the lamb and talking about it. You had someone presiding over the meal and here's what's interesting. And this would have been for many like blasphemous what Jesus is doing. He, he's now saying, let me redefine, let me redefine the Seder. Let me redefine this Passover meal. Let me tell you what it really speaks of. Because this is really interesting. And let, just please hear this before we, we close at our time. The presider would get up and hold up the bread and say, see this bread? We had to run. We had to, take it, we had to eat this in a hurry. We, we had to get out of there. And they said, this is the bread of our affliction. They would say, this is the bread of our affliction, the affliction of our people. Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to be the person who's afflicted. Not, not of your affliction. Running for, I'm going to be the person that takes on the affliction. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to be the ultimate Moses. I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus. I'm going to lead the ultimate redemption story. You were redeemed out of slavery. I'm going to redeem you out of slavery physically, spiritually, in every way. I'm going to be the ultimate. This is the bread of my affliction. Eat this. Take on, take, Jesus took on the affliction. He goes, take this. Eat this. 
know that I took this on for you. Be a part of this. Take, eat, this is my body. And then he holds up the cup. And there's four different cups of wine passed around the Seder. And it's believed that Jesus most likely did this at the third cup. And he's just holding up this cup and he's saying, hey, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant. And pointing to Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31, 31. In the Old Testament, God says, I will give you a new covenant. And Jesus is saying, this is that new covenant. Remember that old, remember that in the, in the Bible, what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, with the, with the Jews called the Bible? In Jeremiah 31, God promised there'd be a new covenant. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember that promise? Where is that? When is that? It's now. This is the new covenant. My blood is shed for many for the sins of the world. Take, drink. And this is so interesting, by the way. When, when Moses gave the people the law, I don't know if you know this, but when he gave the people the law, and he's like, do you guys want to follow God? Do you want to serve God and obey the law? They're like, yeah. He, he like, sprinkled blood, blood at the crowd, like had some blood, like sprinkled it at them. And it's like on them. Jesus goes, this is my blood. Drink, take it in. Take it in. It's not that it's sprinkled on you. Just take it in. Drink. Make this a part of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you study the feast, there would be ultimately, and we, every time I read this, I'm like, this is not that great of a meal. I don't know if you're reading, like, where, where's that lamb? Like, why, why is it like, oh, bread and some wine? I'm like, okay, I'm still hungry. Where's the lamb? Usually the lamb, the lamb is on the table, but this time the lamb's at the table. And Jesus is like, I'm the lamb, I'm the sacrifice, eat of me. The, the, whether, it's the, <laughs> whether it's the wine, whether it's the bread, whether it's the lamb itself, me, me, it speaks of me, it's all about me. Eat of me, partake of me. And here we are again, 2,000 plus years later, and we do this to remember Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, say, Jesus, you're the ultimate redeemer. Jesus, it was because your body was afflicted, I don't have to be. Jesus, because your blood was shed, I can now have forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus is redefining the Passover, the Seder, and saying, it's all about me. It speaks of me. Take, eat, enjoy, celebrate, remember, do this. And I love when he says, I'm not going to drink this cup again until I drink with you new in heaven. The next time you see me drinking this, I'm going to be drinking it with you guys. And there's a side of this, like this hope. Can I, can I tell you what that does for the disciples? There's this hope of, I want to drink this with Jesus. I, I want to partake of this in, with Jesus. And I love talking about this, but because maybe there's something wrong with me, but I love the fact that we do eat in heaven. I love that. <laughs> I love that there's like, hey, I'm going to drink this wine with you. Yes, there's wine in heaven. Like, there's this. And like, we get to see this idea of just, man, we get to be with Jesus, enjoy Jesus, and celebrate Jesus. And we take communion to this day to say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken for me. By your stripes were healed. Jesus, thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And because your blood was shed, we now have forgiveness. And thank you for being the lamb. Thank you for being the last sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, that it's not blood we apply to doorposts, but it's blood applied to the cross and ultimately applied to our lives so that you and I can now have redemption and new life. Thank you, Jesus. He's all of those things. He is the Passover meal. Amen? He is what we celebrate. He is what we look to. And so here's what we're going to do, like I mentioned. We're going to do this a little bit differently today. So for example, normally we pass out communion. We're going to say take, take and eat. We're going to end with a couple songs of worship instead of just like a closeout. We're going to end with some time for you guys just to actually take some spiritual inventory. So here's what I want to point out. We're going to have communion up here in just a second. We're going to have communion at some, a few back tables as you guys can see. But here, please listen and please don't get distracted. If you need to go back to your seat or sit alone, this is going to be a little bit different than how we normally do it. Like I said, we're going to try to give you some more time to respond to Jesus and let him just minister to your heart, to reread this, to think about this woman's extravagant act of love, to think about Jesus' extravagant act of love, and we're going to say, take and eat. And we're going to give you a couple of songs, a couple, a couple, couple more minutes than normal, and then we'll come, up, come back up here and just end with some prayer and share some things with you guys. But please, if you are a believer, take this, celebrate this. If you're not a believer and you want to believe today and you say, I want to just, I believe this. I believe Jesus is that ultimate Passover lamb, then come and take. This is for you. We remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, amen? I'm going to pray right now. We're going to end with some worship. And please, when you're ready, just come up here and grab communion or go to the back, whatever's closest to you, and grab communion. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, I, I don't ever want to be guilty of just reading this text and doing this mindlessly, <laughs> Jesus. God, we, we thank you so much for the fact that you gave your best for us, that you are the, the last sacrifice, the lamb to end all lambs. God, that you, you gave your body, you shed your blood so we could have forgiveness of sins, how we look to the cross, how we look to this moment, how we look to what we call the last supper, really the first supper, <laughs> Really the time from here on out where, Jesus, we want to celebrate this until we do that with you in the kingdom. So, Lord, we just do ask. God, let this not just be a sad thing for, for us who maybe don't get this. Lord, let us celebrate that my sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven because your blood was applied. God, let us, let us be joyful. Let us celebrate. God, for those who still maybe haven't experienced this and don't get this or mock this or belittle this, Jesus, I ask that your spirit would speak to them that you'd speak over everyone in this room, you are forgiven because of Jesus. You are redeemed because of Jesus. God loves you. That God, you speak your truth over all of us today. That Jesus, in this moment, and this time, we can just hear your voice. Let us be quiet, let us be still. We ask Jesus in your name, amen.